Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Welcome. As you make your way back, Happy New Year. It's good seeing all of you guys. Uh, first of all, I just want to shout out to uh, Dean. He's not here. Um, he got sick, unfortunately. Just to last minute to fill the pulpit for me. Um, Saturday morning, I called out. I said, Dean, I'm out. I need you to step up. And he did. And praise the Lord for the incredible job that he has done. Uh, let, let me pray for us before we get into the word. I'm a little bit intimidated by this passage, not going to lie, and wondering out of all the Sundays, why this Sunday? But uh, let's ask the Lord to really move. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your faithfulness and for your goodness. God, I thank you that you disclose yourself and that you are personal. I thank you that when we look to the Son, we see the Father. And Lord, I I pray that as we read this text, and as complicated and intrinsic as it is, that we would just be in awe of you, Lord Jesus. And that we would walk out of here in awe of you, wanting to honor you as we believe in you and obey you. And so, Lord, can you speak to us and really stir our hearts because we know that without you, we really cannot understand this text whatsoever. And so we need your help. And so open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our minds. Holy Spirit, can you preach a better message than what I prepared for? Can your name be glorified? And we love you, and we praise you, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, we're picking up our series again back in in the book of John. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to John. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 5, verse 19. And so the purpose of our series and and the reason uh, why we're studying the book of John is is really the purpose of of John. John kind of gives us his own purpose statement of why he wrote the gospel according to John. And he tells us in John chapter 20, verse 30, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the fundamental question that John is addressing is not necessarily who is Jesus, but rather who is the Messiah, who is the Son of God, who is the Christ. And the reason he's going to show us that his name is Jesus and the reason why he is revealing to us the identity of Jesus and the very purpose of writing his book is so that we may believe and have life in his name. And so my hope for us in this series and my invitation for us in this series is so that you may believe in Jesus, whether you've believing in him for the very first time or whether you are continuing to believe, believe in Jesus so that you may have life in his name. Now, I don't have time to summarize the entire book of John, what we've covered so far, but we're going to do a quick recap before we get into our text. Now, I think sometimes when we study a book of the Bible, the best way to to approach it is kind of to to try to divide it in parts, to look at the big picture of what is the author trying to communicate to us. And we said even in our series, I think the best approach to the gospel of John is to take the book and break it up into two parts. And I think this is very helpful for us. And we said the very first part of 
of, of the Gospel of John where we read about Jesus revealing his glory. That's John chapter 2 all the way to chapter 12. And then the second part of the book is where Jesus receives his glory. That is John 13 all the way to 21. And so, so far in our study of the Gospel of John, John has been showing us how Jesus has been revealing his glory by taking the old and making it new. Jesus provides the new wine that surpasses the old purification system that renders it obsolete. Jesus is the new and better priest that mediates and keeps the temple clean. He is the new and better temple where God manifests himself and where sinners meet with a holy God. He is the new and better sacrifice that is sacrificed once and for all. Jesus provides new birth through regeneration. He is the new and living water that satisfies eternally. And so, so far, this is what we've covered in the Gospel of John. And now, as we get into chapter 5, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. And then, as Jesus was approached by the religious leaders, Jesus makes stunning claims about himself that God is his father. And so these religious leaders knew exactly the claims that Jesus was making about himself. In other words, Jesus was claiming to be equal with God. And so in our passage today, as he's talking to these religious leaders, he's making it plain of what it means for Jesus to be equal with God. Now, before we get into the passage, like one of the hard things about especially the gospel of John is that we can fall into several traps. We, we can look at this passage and we can make it so intellectual because as you read it, you're going to find out like what in the world is he saying? And that, that we talk so much about the intrinsic between the relationship between the Father and the Son and really not understand what that means for us. Or the other part we can go into is that we can kind of ignore the intellectual part of it and say, yeah, 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 but what does it have to do with my life? And then we make it all about ourselves. And I think those are two traps that we're falling. And so I'm going to try my best to kind of strike that balance of like, what is Jesus saying? Like, what does it really mean? And then also talk about like, what impact, what application does it have to our lives? So as we look at the passage, we're going to read uh, John chapter 5, verse 19, and look at the staggering claims that Jesus is making to be equal with God. Let's look at verse 19. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing, and he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, so the Son also gives life to whom he wants. The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father." Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. See my point? What in the world is going on? If we read verse 18, the verse before verse 19, Jesus has just made himself equal to God the Father. And based on this conversation, what Jesus is now doing is unpacking what it looks like for Jesus, the Son, to be equal to the Father. Now, as we, as we talk about this equality between God the Father and God the Son, there's many questions that some of us might have. 
First question is, okay, well, what does it mean for Jesus to be equal with God the Father? Is Jesus independent of God the Father? Does Jesus have less authority and power than God the Father or the same amount of authority and power of God the Father? Does Jesus have to submit to the Father? And if so, does the Father also have to submit to the Son? What's the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? Can we answer these questions? Well, yeah. Let's look at the passage and try to answer the questions. So in these verses, Jesus is making it plain to his opponents what it means for Jesus the Son to be equal with God the Father in four statements. So the very first statement, if you're taking notes, is this. The Son does not act independent of the Father. The Son does not act independent of the Father. Let's look at verse 19 again. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father is doing. So what is John telling us? In a sense, he's telling us the Son cannot act on his own initiative that would set him over or against God the Father as a separate God. The son can only do what he sees his father is doing. So in other words, Jesus can't take initiative. He cannot act independent of the father. And so in this equality, there is dependence between God the father and God the son. He cannot act independent as a separate God. Now, you might be thinking, okay, if the son cannot do anything on his own, if he cannot take any initiative of his own, if he can only act independent of the father, does that mean God the father is greater than God the son? Because that would be your normal conclusion. And the answer is no. Because look at the second part of of verse 19. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. The only one who can do what the Father does must be as great as the Father or as divine of the Father. And what does Jesus say? I can do only what my Father does. And all that my Father does, I can do as well. So in the very first statement, as he's unpacking what it means for Jesus to be equal with God the Father, he's kind of talking about this unity between God the Father and God the Son. That's why God the Son cannot act independent of God the Father. Now there's a second question you might be wondering. How can the Son then do whatever the Father does? Well, look at verse 20 where we now start to see a glimpse of this relationship between the Father and the Son. Verse 20 says this, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him everything He is doing, and He will show Him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So the second statement that that Jesus makes about himself, not only can he not act independent of the Father, but the second one, if you're taking notes, is that the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. The Father 
loves the son and shows him all he does. So now we start to see the intrinsicness between the relationship between the father and the son. Not can the son, the son cannot act independent of the father. He can only do what the father shows him. And he can do everything the father does, but now we see that the father loves the son so much that he shows him everything that he does. So the love of the father for the son is displayed in this continuous disclosure of all that he does to the son. And the son's love to the father is this perfect obedience. So now we see this love relationship between the father and the son. How do we know the father loves the son? Because the father shows the son everything. And how do we know the son loves the father? Because the son perfectly obeys the father. Now, if that love relationship is true, if the father out of love for the son shows him everything he does, and if the son walking in perfect obedience to the father because of his love to the father, there is one important truth for us to understand. The son, by his obedience to his father, is acting in such a way that he is revealing the father. That's the important truth. The important truth is, if you want to know what God is like, who do you look to? Look to the son. Why? Because the son does everything the father does. And because the father loves the son and shows him everything. And the son, in perfect obedience, reveals the will of God as he submits to the father in obedience. And so what that means for us is now that when we look to Jesus, he is revealing to us what God the father is like. Are you guys tracking with me? Okay, so two things so far. The son cannot act independent of the father. He can only do what the father does. The father loves the son so much that he shows him everything. He doesn't hide anything. And the son loves the father so much that he perfectly obeys the father. But now that kind of leads us to another question. Okay, they are equal They are united, this beautiful love relationship. But does the father seem to have more authority than the son? Well, let's look at verse 21. And he says this, And just as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, so the son also gives life to whom he wants. So now we we kind of see our third statement. Who has the authority to give life and raise the dead? Both the Father and the Son. So our third statement is, if you're taking notes, is that the Father and the Son has the same authority to raise the dead and give life. So they have the same authority to raise the dead and give life. Now, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament writers and even the people of the Old Testament believe that the right and the authority to give life, to raise the dead, and also take life away belong to God and to God alone. We read about it in 2 Kings 5 verse 7. The king of Israel who was a wicked king, he read the letter from the Assyrians and he tore his clothes and he said, Am I God killing and giving life? In other words, even a wicked king said, I do not have the authority to kill and give life. 
Only God does. That authority belongs to him and him alone. And so the entire Bible in the Old Testament was set up that that authority, that right, belonged to God and God alone. And so what is Jesus telling us now in the New Testament? Now Jesus is saying, yeah, that authority belongs to me as well. But, but, but notice the, the, the kind of catch to it. Notice what Jesus is saying. Not only does he say he has that authority, but look at the second part of verse 21. He says, so the son also gives life to who? He's not giving life to who the father says he's giving life to, but rather he gives life to whoever he, he wants. If he wants to give you life, guess what? He can give you life. If he doesn't want to give you life, guess what? He's not going to give you life. Why? Because he has the right and the authority to do so. But remember, these four statements that Jesus is making, they can't contradict one another. They kind of have to be intertwined. One statement cannot stand by itself. So if Jesus is making these four statements about himself, saying, I cannot, I cannot act independent of my Father. My Father loves me so much that he shows me everything he does. We have the same authority to, to raise the dead and to give life. And Jesus now, in a sense, says, and I can give life whoever I want to. And so since Jesus cannot in act independent of the Father, but he can only do the will of the Father, their worlds are so united and integrated that the statement that Jesus can make, I can give life to whoever I want, falls in line with the will of the Father. Like, like that's just mind-blowing. It's like you almost saying, my spouse can make decisions, whatever decision she's going to make, with such certainty the decision that she's going to make on her own free will is going to be aligned with your will. And this is what Jesus, in a sense, is saying. The Father and the Son have the same authority to raise the dead and to give life. Which now leads us to another question. If God the Father are equal, united in love, share the same authority and power, do they have different roles? Well, let's see what verse 22 says. It says this, The Father, in fact, judges no one, but has given judgment to the Son. So the fourth statement, if you're taking notes, is that all judgment has been entrusted to who? The Son. has been entrusted to Jesus. So since both the Father and the Son enjoys the right and the authority of giving life, the Father has determined that it will not be His direct task to judge anyone, but instead has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Now, throughout the Bible, God has been recognized as the judge of all the earth. Throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, God has frequently exercised judgment on the lives of His covenant people and also on the surrounding nations. But at the end of the age, there will be the last great hearing when all will be judged, both great and small. And who holds that office? Jesus holds that office as He judges whether in the present or in the last day. It has been entrusted to him and to him alone. Now, this does not mean Jesus will exercise judgment independently of the Father, 
for even the judgment he exercises is a reflection of his consistent determination to please the one who sent him. So in other words, again, they are so united that as the son is judging because he has that rule alone, it falls in line with the father as well because they're equal, that you're united, they share in the same power and authority, and yet even in their different roles as they execute the roles, it's not a clash of wills or philosophies or ideas, but rather it is an execution of the perfect triune God. So the question is, well, why did the Father entrust all judgment to the Son? Look at verse 23. So that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So the Son does everything the Father does, And now Jesus declares that its purpose is that the Son may be at one in the Father, not only in activity, but also in honor, which emphasizes the equality between God the Father and God the Son. And so the application that Jesus makes in these four statements about himself is that he must be honored. And the conclusion is that Jesus makes that if he is not honored, then God the Father who sent him is not honored. So why does Jesus make all these statements about himself? Well, what does it have to do with us in our lives? So that we honor him. So we can see how big and how awesome he is, that he is just as much God God the Father is as God the Son, that they're equal and united. And so the question for us that we might need to stop and reflect is like, am I honoring Jesus as God? Like, how am I honoring Him in my life? We'll go back and revisit that in a little bit. But just just think about these claims that Jesus is making about Himself. These statements that he's making about himself either belongs to the one who is God and needs to be approached as God or a one who's absolutely a fool and a madman. Like, like there's no middle ground with these, with, with these statements. He either should be dismissed and pitied as a fool or he needs to be worshipped as Lord. Like there's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus especially the claims that he makes about himself. And so Jesus continues this theme of of giving life to whoever he wants as he now explains to who he gives life to and what that looks like. Let's keep reading verse 24. It says this, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. So in other words, in the previous statements, Jesus kind of already talked about, I have the same right and authority to give life to whoever I want. Because I am just as much God the Father is as God the Son. We are equal. We are united. And so the people might be thinking, okay, well, who are the ones that he chooses to give life to? And in verse 24, he tells us, 
the one who hears my word and believes the one who sent me. And so just as Jesus healed the invalid by the pool of Bethesda by his word, so also by his word he brings eternal life. Like, just think about this, what that means. How does Jesus give life? Through his word. And his word is either believed and, 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 and you get life, or his word is rejected and there's eternal condemnation. Again, there is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. He's either God or he's not. He's either God or a madman. He's either accepted and believed or he is rejected. And so by his word, he raises the dead. He gives life. And that very word that is heard and believed grants eternal life. But that very word that is rejected brings eternal condemnation. And here in this context, hearing his word is not just believing his word, but also obeying his word. And now in verse 25, he kind of gives us the power of his word. Look, look at the power of his word in verse 25. He says, truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he is granted to the Son to have life in himself. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, I don't have time to unpack every single verse, but, but the thing, couple of things I want to point out to you is look at the power of his word. If you're taking notes, is this. The power of his word gives life and exercises divine judgment. The power of his word gives life and exercises divine judgment. It's by the voice of the Son of God that calls forth the dead. And those who hear will live. And it's the voice of the Son of God that exercises divine judgment. Now, a question we might be having is this. Is how is it that Jesus can generate resurrection life and exercise divine judgment by his powerful word. Well, look, look at verse 26. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he is granted to the Son to have life in himself. So obviously God is self-existent, which means God has always existed. No one has given him life, which means he is the giver of all life. We as created creatures, are not self-existent, but rather our existence depended on the one to give us life. But what does it say about Jesus here? But the Son, and to the Son alone, look at verse 26 again, for just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. 
Now, that does not mean that all of a sudden Jesus was such a good son that he gained this privilege because John has already told us in his prologue that in him was life, that Jesus from the very beginning has always existed. But rather the act of imparting life in himself to the son is rooted in this eternal relationship between the father and the son that has always existed, which means there was never a time where the son did not have life in himself. So in a sense, what Jesus is saying to his audience, the reason why I have the power to raise the dead and to eternally judge people, because just like the Father who is life in himself, so me, myself, I have life in myself as well. I am eternal. I have always existed. So the first reason why Jesus can generate resurrected life and exercise divine judgment by his powerful word is because Jesus has life in himself. But look at the second reason in verse 27. And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he is the son of man. So just as the father has imparted life in himself to the son, so he also has given him the authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Now, I wish I had time to unpack the title Son of Man. I don't. Um, That title came up in Daniel 7, verse 13 to 14. And the religious leaders knew exactly this title that Jesus was giving to himself. But what, what Jesus is saying, because Jesus is God, who he is receiving, the Son of Man is receiving a kingdom that entails total dominion, and at the same time, he belongs to humanity because he walked where humans walked. That this title, Son of Man, is the combination of Jesus, who is both fully God and fully man, because he is the Son of Man that is both fully God, fully man. It makes him uniquely qualified to be the eternal judge. So in other words, Jesus, by his powerful word, can generate resurrection life, exercise divine judgment because he has life in himself, because he is the son of man. Again, that's all intellectual, and we need to understand this. But what does that mean for us? What's the application to us? The application that Jesus makes about himself is that the word must be believed and obeyed. Jesus is the word that not only gives life, but also judges. Even think about the written word. The written word, the Bible, is the very word of God. It either gives you life, whereby you're transformed by it as you believe it, or it condemns you and it judges you. Again, there's no middle ground. And this is what Jesus is saying about himself. He is the powerful word of God that raises the dead and eternally judges the wicked. And our only response to the word is to believe it for what it says and to walk in obedience of it. Now remember, we're almost done here. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. Their attitude towards Jesus is they want to kill him because of the staggering claims that Jesus is making about himself. But the question that we have is, okay, 
these are all incredible claims that Jesus is making. But what kind of witnesses, what kind of case is he building to testify to what he is saying is true? Like, how do we and how do the opponents know that what Jesus is saying about himself is true without any kind of witnesses? And Jesus says, well, I'm glad you're asked. Look at all these witnesses that I'm presenting to you. Look at verse 31. Here's the first witness. He says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies about me, and I know that the testimony he gives about me is true. You sent messengers to John, and he testified to the truth. I don't receive, verse 34, I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So, so the very first witness that, that Jesus brings that have testified about him is that of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came before Jesus and prepared the way of the Lord. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what did people do? People flocked to John, listened to his message, heard his message. But then what happened? Then they saw the one. And yet the one that they were anticipating was not the one they expected. So they believed for a little bit that the one was coming until they saw the one. And they did not want to believe in the one because it's not who they thought it should be, which really reveals more about their heart than anything else. But look at the second witness Jesus presents in verse 36. He says, But I have a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These very works I'm doing testify about me, the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified about me. You have not heard his voice at any time and you haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. So the, 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 the um, second witness Jesus presents is the very works he's doing. All of his miracles, all of his works that's performing is testifying about his deity. Like, who can open up the eyes of the blind? Who can make the lame walk? Who can open up the ears of the deaf? Who can raise the dead? Only one who is divine can do these things. For this belongs to God and God alone. And all of these miracles that Jesus is performing all the sick he's healing, basically he's showing how he's undoing all of the effects of sin as he's starting to make all things new, as it's pointing towards his divinity. But then also his, his fourth witness was the Father himself. The Father himself testifies by sending him into the world. And then the last witness is the witness of Scripture. Look at verse 41. I do not accept glory from people, but I know you, that you have no love for God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe me, what he wrote, how will you believe my words? So the final witness 
that is pointing to Jesus and also accusing those who are refusing to believe is the witness of Scripture. Now, the religious leaders knew the Scripture. They memorized most of the Old Testament. They knew all the ins and outs of every single law. But here's a shocking statement that Jesus makes. In all of their study of Scripture... Their entire life devotion of studying the law and obeying the law, they have missed the point. They had searched the scripture because they believed that following the law will bring eternal life. And yet in their searching, they have missed that every verse and every chapter and every page pointed to the one who gives eternal life. Is Jesus and they've missed it and this is why Jesus is saying you have missed it you don't believe it so you won't believe my words so so let's wrap it up here we're done with the text let's talk a little bit about application here so, so based on the staggering claims that Jesus makes about himself as he reveals equality with the father and also unity with the father what should our response be to Jesus that of honoring him, that of believing him, that of obeying his word. And so I think a question that all of us needs to be asked inward is, how am I honoring Jesus as God? How do I, how am I beholding him? How am I in awe of him? And I think, Just like the religious leaders, even though when we read Scripture, none of us want to relate to them, I think there's a lot of things that are true about the religious leaders that are true for us even today. See, what stands in the way of us honoring Him, believing Him, and obeying His Word is just like the religious leaders, we're prone to imagine a God who we want Him to be rather than who He really is. We can take our entire life and devote ourselves to studying of the word and studying of the scriptures and yet miss the whole point because we are too busy trying to find a God who we want him to be rather than a God who he reveals himself to be through the word. And we have a tendency where we want things the way we want them. And then we, we get shocked when, when Jesus calls us to humility, when he calls us to sacrifice. We, we feel surprised to the life that Jesus calls us as a life of suffering as he calls us to suffer as he suffers. We don't want to wait. We don't want to trust. We don't want to rest. We want to take hands into our own matters. We want to find answers in the word right now to fix our lives. But that's not the life that Jesus calls us to live. He calls us to live a different kind of life. He calls us to to honor him. He calls us to trust in him. He calls us to rest in him. He calls us to wait for him. He he calls us to, to rely on his strength, not our own strength. And so Jesus confronts us with this question. Will you believe my word? Will you rest in my word? Will you trust 
in my word. See, what frustrates me every Sunday, because I know it frustrates you, is I want to walk out of here with tangible steps to fix my life. Anybody frustrated when you don't get that? And yet, what does the word teach me? Look to him. Trust in him. Rest in him. Wait in him. Do you know how you honor Christ? You don't honor Christ by doing more, doing better, trying harder. You honor Christ by believing. And part of believing is resting in him, trusting in him, waiting for him, surrendering to him. How can we do this or why? Because of the claims that Jesus made about himself. I am equal and united with God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, look to me. And by my powerful word, I will raise the, the dead and I will eternally condemn and judge the wicked. So the invitation for us, believe. Whether you're believing for the first time, or whether you already believe the invitation is the same, to believe in him, to continue to believe. And look at this wonderful promise in verse 24. Look at verse 24 again. Truly I tell you, anyone, anyone, who's that anyone? Doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your baggage. It doesn't matter the sins that you have committed or the sins you did not commit. Doesn't matter anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment but has passed from death to life. In other words, it's not about what you need to be doing. It's what he has done for you. All you do is hear and believe, which is literally receiving what he has given you. And the promise is in the day of judgment, you will not be condemned, but you will pass from death to life, regardless of your background, regardless of your sin, regardless of your struggles, regardless of your imperfections. When you hear his word and you take it for what he says is true and you receive it, the promise is life, eternal life. What an incredible promise. Let me pray for us as we get ready to sit at the table. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercy, for your grace. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the invitation that you have given us to believe your word. And Lord, as your word was proclaimed this morning, I pray that you would help us to hear, help us to believe it, help us to receive it, help us to cling on it and to it trusting that what you've done for us is enough.
as we get ready to sit at the table. The reason why Jesus can make these promises that if you believe his word, you will no longer be judged, but you will pass from death to life. And the reason why is because what's on this table, what Jesus has done on your behalf, he lived a life you could not live, and he died the death you were supposed to die, where his body was broken for you, where he took all of your sins, all of your baggage, all of your insecurities, all of your rebellion and your defiance against a holy God, and he took it upon himself, and he paid for it in full. Satisfied God's wrath so that you can have life. And so the invitation and the reminder is to believe that what he has done is enough. I don't need to add anything to it. It is finished. And so when my sin at times condemns me, I am reminded of his body broken for me, his blood was shed for me, and by receiving it, I am practicing an act of believing it. I don't need to do better. I don't need to try harder. I need to look to Christ, honoring him, by trusting and believing in him. And so as we get ready to distribute these elements, like, like meditate on these truths. What areas in your life do you need to surrender? What areas in your life do you have a hard time to trust him? Like, do you believe that what Christ has done for you on the cross is enough, is satisfying? And think about that sin you're wrestling with. Think about how Jesus has paid for it in full. Let's distribute these elements as we meditate upon these truths. Just think about this. The Son of God, who is equal with God, united with God, has the authority to give life and to take life away, who has the role of judging. And with a word, he raises the dead, and with a word he condemns and eternally judges. He took on flesh and did not come in this world to condemn it, but to give it life by giving his own life for you and for me. His body that was broken for us, eat it in remembrance of him. His blood that was shed for us, the new covenant we have, we can drink it in remembrance of him. Why don't you just take a moment right now and just thank the Lord for what he's done for you. Why don't you ask the Lord to, to help you honor him? To help you believe in him and trust in him and rest in him? When you ask the Lord to help you to behold him and just to be in awe of him? So that when you open up his word, you're just 
just so moved and overwhelmed by it as it gives you life, as it nourishes and feeds you, as it convicts you. God, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the love that you have for us. Lord, our minds are so finite. We can barely comprehend. Our lives are so fragile. We're like a breath. We're like the flowers that just wither. And yet you are mindful of us. You created us. You love us. You delight in us. And even in our rebellion, you did not give up on us, but that you came and saved us. And you promised to come and to make all things new. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us in the complexity of our lives to look to you, trust in you, to wait, to long for you, and to find satisfaction in you. Continue to stir our hearts, and may your name be glorified. And we love you and we praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand. Let's worship our King.